Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Real spoilers powered by reviewstl.com. Warning. The following film discussion will ruin the ending of any movie you haven't seen. Example. Bruce Willis is dead at the end of The Sixth Sense. See how I ruined it for you? Just like that. Here are a few more. Silent Breed is people! I am the father. Get it? Real spoilers. You've been warned. Broadcasting from the lush but not lavish studios located in the basement of the O'Keefe Institute for Advanced Film Snarkitude, this is Real Spoilers Episode 267, Beauty and the Beast. Which are you? Uh, you know, I'm going to let the <laughs> listeners decide because, you know, the, the podcast medium is a great way to determine whether one is beauty or a beast. You know, like it's we're, it's very uh, new millennium where it's so now the joke everybody's sick of hearing is I have a face for podcasting. That's <laughs> yeah, where we're at. Exactly. So, um, so we're it's just uh, we're down to two on this particular episode. So we uh, brought in a guest, uh, our resident Disney expert, Jim Hill from Jim Hill Media. Hi, Jim. Hey, guys. How are you tonight? Doing excellent. So oh, wow. we figured uh, who would know more about this sort of stuff than Jim Hill? He always has great inside scoop and stories and behind the scenes and trivia. And like, there's a lot of Disney nerds on this podcast, but you kick our ass. And we mean that as a compliment, even though it had the word nerd in it. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, um, all right. So I guess let's uh, just so kind of start. We normally just kind of go through the, the the plot points of the movie. And since Joe, our resident synopsisizer, is uh, not here, I'm going to make Kevin do it. Oh no! <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, you're the you're the you're the one that's like I love this. I've seen the original million times, so it should first, be easy. First for of you. all, it was only nine hundred thousand times I've seen the original. <laughs> to be fair, but no, this this is my favorite Disney animated film. This is one that uh, I've held near and dear for a long time growing up you know i think i rank it somewhere i mean this number one aladdin number two lion king number three so that's kind of my order tom what's your order of disney animated stuff um especially when you get into that the that the disney the renaissance, the renaissance not the old but yeah, like yeah, including yeah. of like um mermaid I, or great mouse man, detective I got, on i gotta go with little mermaid yeah i think every song in that works like there's not a there's not a, a clunker among them in that one See, that's how I feel about this one, too, because the music is so good, and obviously we'll get into that, but I think the reason it's so timeless is because the animated film, the Broadway show, this movie, you know, without this great music, you know, I mean, that's that's what really makes it. Jim, how about you? What are some of your favorites from the resurgence? Um, Well, you know, I mean, it just... (laughs) You know, the, the, the Beast is a favorite, but if I've got to pick a best from that period, I think it's Aladdin, um, mostly because of, you know, I mean, it's a great Venn diagram. I mean, it's, it's you know, great Disney animation, wonderful score, you know, the, the last that we really got from, from Ashman and coupled with, you know, Robin Williams' performance, which, you know, really, you know, sort of set fire to that film. And particularly now that you know we the way we lost Robin Williams, it's just it you know it, it it's a harder film to watch now, particularly 
you know, I, I always tear up when the genie says goodbye to Aladdin. I think that's one of the best story moments out of a Disney animated film. But now it's just that much tougher to watch. But but sure. Beast is you right know. up there. I mean, Beast is is the film that convinced a lot of adults. You know, I mean, this that was the thing people forget about. You know, the film in '91. This was a date movie. I mean, people yeah. literally took other adults to this movie because of the romance and the humor and the music, and that was you know why it was the very first uh, you know animated film to get you know uh, to to get a Best Picture nomination. And I feel like this is the this was the movie where people were like, "There, this is." Broadway for the masses like this is Broadway without going to Broadway it was a Broadway caliber production it just happened to be a cartoon and you know it's funny you say that because that when Frank Rich who was the lead theater critic for the New York Times uh, wrote about this movie he said the best Broadway musical of the year is in a movie theater right now it's Beauty and the Beast and and that is actually one of the things that convinced Michael Eisner that okay this is the one we're going to take to Broadway this is going to be our first you know really for real theatrical production so oh uh, no you're well, right on the money that's why it's such a smooth transition and I mean it works so well because how do you screw that up I mean as long as you have good costumes and good actors like the songs are already there it's a it's a hip Broadway show waiting yeah. to be made mm-hmm. so it was still I mean you know <laughs> they, they, they still struggled with that one in fact that there are some just great stories from the tryout at theater of the stars and I, I want to say it was Houston where you know I mean there's things you could do in animation. Like, for example, Act 2 of the musical starts off with the wolf attack on, you know, on Belle in the Woods. And, you know, for the, initially what they did were puppets. And, you know, so it's supposed to be this big, tense moment. And the music builds and out of the <laughs> fog basically come these dog Muppets. And it was like, you know, the audience starts laughing. And it's just sure. like, okay, that's not going to work. You know, and they, <laughs> they it, it, to this day, even when, you know, community theater groups do it, because I guess they, they reconfigure the wolves as dancers, like really bad cats type dancers only with wolf costumes it, that's redundant that's redundant yeah, yeah <laughs> it's just one of those moments where it's like can we get past this quickly and get the beast back from bell back to the castle and you know it's interesting i've, n- I've never seen the the broadway production but mm-hmm. i've always kind of wondered where the split point is because i don't feel like this this story has a a natural like traditional Shakespearean apex moment where this is where the story break is and it it ha- ends on a big beat and then you take a pause have your intermission and and pick it up like it it doesn't really have that moment it's halfway point point is they're kind of just putzing around the castle trying to figure out if they love each to other. me it seems like after the wolf attack when she realizes that she doesn't leave him to die she saves him yeah. and after that you get the there's something there song so to me that feels like the split yeah well, it, it, it's interesting i mean you know the, in fact what's kind of funny is the difference between the broadway show and now the two seven, 2017 live action is that in the 2017 thing you have the number well, when the when the beast releases bell and she goes back to where you know you know hops on the horse and goes running you know off into the countryside there's a song what is it uh forevermore i think the beast evermore yeah yeah, that new one by Dan Stevens, or that he sings, is everywhere. Yeah, and it's just the thing is he's climbing the castle, and he keeps looking at the window, and she's getting further away, and you know, cause she's, and she's riding on her, you know, wearing her yellow dress while she's, so he can pick her out in the, the ornamental garden, but 
in the Broadway show, the way they end Act One is that, you know, from the moment where the bell jar, where, where she, you know, she goes to touch the rose, takes the bell jar off, and they hack, he screams at her and that sort of thing, and he realizes he's driven her away, and it's it's the exact same thing. He basically climbs the castle. They actually rotate the set, and he has a song called If I Can't Love Her, and it's actually the big ballad that ends the first act, and it's what's really effective with that placement, I to be honest, I don't think, you know, Forevermore worked where it was in the live action thing. I mean, I get it. You know, you want to give Dan Stevens a song, and obviously this is a dramatic point in the story, but it's just sort of like he kept singing and climbing and singing and climbing. <laughs> and it's just sort of like, all right, are you going to run out of castle soon? Because this really isn't a good song. You know, It's like, and, is this castle designed by Eicher? see i'll i'll have to agree to disagree with you there because that's my favorite new song of the movie i loved it i thought it was just beautifully written by alan mankin i thought dan stevens did a great job performing it josh groban does a version but i actually prefer the dan stevens one and i i loved it well i think jim and i are going to gang up on you then because i i thought all the new music for this movie was just completely bland and forgettable yeah, so I, I, w- I wasn't too yeah. crazy about most of the additions. There's four new songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you include the post-credits version that Celine Dion sings that Kevin Klein kind of hums a few bars of it, you right. know, uh, um, but I just thought Evermore was beautiful. But, you know, hey, you know, to each their own. Yeah, I just was Your really disappointed. Uh, but it, yeah, yeah. it's interesting you say that because the, the, I think, you know, Kevin Klein, because he undersells that song, it works. Oh yeah, his version. Don't yeah. get me wrong; his version's better than Celine Dion's. I I would much rather hear Kevin because Kevin Klein is singing it about his daughter and his life, and there's there's acting going on. It's not right. just singing; he's acting the song. It's and- funny how you say that Kevin Klein undersells because I felt like his his entire performance undersold the role, and I and 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 I mean that in a good way. Like I, it would have been so easy to go big and and instead he went the other direction and i i do think that he made his story arc a lot more poignant because he went smaller not larger like he felt more wounded by life i totally agree so let's okay so if we're talking performances and differences in characters we gotta go to it gentlemen let's talk about lefou and <laughs> Certainly, I, th- this this to me, I, I you know you you have some more insight than I do, I think, but uh, I I thought it was such a non-issue because you know the director Bill Conan didn't interview, and I think it was uh, what it was a gay magazine or online publication, and so I think he was pandering to his audience. I mean, he clearly was using dialogue that he doesn't use in his everyday or any other interviews and he tried to play it up to their audience like hey we have an openly gay character and i completely disagree there's nothing openly gay about the character you can infer it you can take your best guess i mean it it clearly is in that direction but again he's not openly gay the definition of that would be him saying i am gay i am looking for a husband like he's not i don't know I, i i felt like he was pretty open about his his attraction to gaston it's just gaston was so narcissistic he didn't hear it but you'd have to interpret that he i mean the actor luke evans for instance um he has came out and said that uh, that he does not feel that lefou is gay he feels that he is looking up to him like a a best friend or you know like you would do to another oh that feels like damage control (laughs) maybe but you know but i mean well i mean guys guys, all right we're not talking about gay We're, we're talking about we have a lefou that is at least 20 to 30 iq points ahead of 
of Gaston. I mean, th- th- again, I think that was the story. The smart LeFou. The, you know, yeah. I mean, how many the times fool, did yeah. like, LeFou diffuse situations where, you know, you know, like, for example, when he calms down Gaston at some point, remember the war, widows, you know. That, that's, yeah. That, oh, yes. I mean, just I, I think for me, that was what was fascinating, the, the notion of the smart LeFou, the one who's, you know, it, it, in fact, I think as the film is starting, he's actually questioning whether I should be still hanging out with this guy. I mean, in fact, they, they, supposedly, according to Condon, there's a there was this entire backstory that they worked out for Gaston that basically, twelve years before the film starts, there's this uh, battle, and Gaston actually manages to d- defeat this this group of Portuguese marauders that are, are, are invading the village, and so he's been a hero and revered for this time, but he's been riding on that this whole time, and. You know, LeFou was with him in the wars and clearly was enamored of him at that point. But you, again, over the course of the way he behaves in this movie, you kind of see LeFou disengaging. In fact, there's that moment in the middle of the slapstick battle at the castle where suddenly, you know, what is it? LeFou is, is talking with, with uh, Mrs. Potts and thinking, we're kind of in a bad place. And, you know, I really feel like I need to switch sides. And, I don't know. I mean, well, the, well that starts. Uh, that actually starts in the "Kill the Beast" song. You know, that was I, I thought one of the best additions. You know, I know we're jumping around a bit, but in that song "Kill the Beast," a completely new line for LeFou says that you know there's a beast running about. I can't remember the lines, but it's not it's not the beast. Right. It's Gaston is what he's alluding to. Yeah, and I thought that was great. That was a great character. Although I would argue that that change in direction for mm-hmm. LeFou is proof that they think he's a gay character because they didn't want to make him a gay character and then have him be a villain. So they had to have a a redemption of sorts for him. So they didn't have to deal with the backlash of why is the gay guy a villain? That's that's interesting. Yeah, I I, I don't think we're in blowout territory. Well, no. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, look, I get it. For me, the entire issue of LeFou being gay was secondary. I mean, for me, the revelation was he's smart. You know, and in fact, you know, just that, and I I really enjoyed what he brought to the, I mean, in in fact, that was the thing of, of Gad's performance was again just like Klein's kind of underpitched. I mean, I love that moment where the the bimbets are sort of you know sort of mooning at Gaston and, and you know and LeFou walks past and forget about it, ladies, never going to happen. You know, yeah. just it was uh, that was it fun. wasn't that, interesting. Think, yeah, added to the film. But then you look at things like um, you know, don't get me wrong, I love Stanley Tucci, but the whole cadenza thing. You know, to go that whole route for one gag at the end of the movie where he's, you know, this, he turns into a harpsichord and then in the big slapstick battle, he's shooting his teeth at people. And so so you get that one gag at the end where he smiles after being reunited with his wife, you know, Audrey McDonald, and he's toothless. It's like you, you that you go two hours just for that <laughs> gag you know. god i didn't even realize that that was what that was supposed well, yeah, to be because he was shooting the white yeah. keys at, no. at the, the I bad didn't guys didn't even make that in fact that would be, there's a moment before he he plays for the the you know beating the the beast in the ballroom where it's i will play through the dental pain and it's just sort of like uh i, I don't know there, right. i was gonna say they built it, it up 
they built it up a lot earlier. I was going to mention that line. Like, it was a long, a long game to get to the end. Yeah, you know, just, and, and that's the other thing. There were so many things in this where would they attempt to deepen and change it? And I, I get it. It's 25 years later. And, you know, the Disney formula, as we've seen so far with, uh, you know, these these new the new fairy tale franchise. I mean, if you think about the changes they made to Cinderella, you know, just a, a couple of years ago uh, or likewise Jungle Book to you know, to, you know, to make it the same only different. It's like, what did you think of the whole magical map thing and then going back to. They're old, you know, that, that's Maurice and, and his wife's old apartment or, or home or whatever it was. And I appreciated the backstory. So, I mean, again, being a huge fan of the animated classic, the original movie is less than an hour and a half. And so this movie is over two hours. But to me, it never feels too drawn out. To me, you get backstories of the prince. We understand why the prince is the way he is, because I honestly have a lot of questions and have had questions for 25 years as to why did this 10-year-old or 11-year-old kid, why was he alone? And why is he punished for not letting a stranger in the house? He's 11 years old with no parents. Like, you know, so we get more of his backstory. We get Belle's mother, which we never get any backstory about her mother. And this one, you understand why she lives alone with her father and the pain they went through and so to me those those additions were really meaningful and i enjoyed them because i want more from these characters i i love this story and so (laughs) you know i i I get that i do but just as a disney geek look there's a an attraction right now at walt disney world called enchanted tales with bell where you go to maurice's cottage all right. And, you know, again, the Imagineers who had no idea. I mean, they were putting this together 2011, 2012, that this movie was ever in the works. But as you, you go into this place and there are paintings up on the wall of, you know, toddler Belle, little girl Belle with her mom. And it just I can't help but think that this, you know, I mean, face it, this movie. That's the other thing. I think at some point we have to talk about the box office of this thing. We are eight you know what is it they they had wednesday's numbers up okay as of wednesday this thing has made 217 million dollars domestic uh Oof. coupled with um you factor in 244 million dollars overseas so total worldwide box office six days in is you know 461 million dollars this thing will be at a half a billion dollars early friday okay um, so it's both beauty and a beast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's beautiful for Disney, it's for beautiful sure. Is, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, think about it. You know, the, the Hollywood rule of thumb is that you have to make three times your production costs before you come into a profit. This thing was budgeted $160 million, So literally, this thing is into profit a week into release. I mean, that's that's amazing. But But at the same time, to double back to the attraction. <laughs> you know you so you know you you've told uh you know the world now with this new movie that that you know bell's mom died of plague and so here you are in the house looking at the pictures up on the wall and wait a minute this is where she died oh you know it's this is where people had plague <laughs> oh that's <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what, that's this, funny i never made that connection because i was just at disney i went tr- 
I went last March and last October, and I never went went to that one. I heard it was more for kids, and then we had something to run to, so we were in line, then we got out of it, and and so I never actually went into the cottage, but that's a really interesting connection you made. Yeah, so, you know, just it's going to be, you know, I'd hate to be the poor cast member who's in there now. You know, it's like, no, 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 she didn't die of plague. No, that that's a live-action movie. You know, no, you don't have to get that out. Knowing Disney, instead what they're doing is they, they sold a very nice sponsorship to like uh, hand sanitizer. Oh, there you go. There you, go. <laughs> you know, it's you know someone's going to go in there and leave one of those old doctor masks in the, in the cottage. <laughs> those creepy pointy nose ones. Yeah. yeah. So so why don't we start at the beginning? Because I have you know I have some questions and and I know Jim has some additional insight to the very beginning. So sure. the movie starts off very similarly to the animated film. This time you have the enchantress narrating, but uh, same old story. You know, there's a prince and he's alone at this castle. But instead of just going through the story, they kind of break into this new song, and that's the one by is it Audrey McDonald? Yeah, that Audrey McDonald. Uh, yeah, so it, it's worth noting here that. Again, you get to see Dan Stevens, though, you know, he's what? You, you, you get close up of the eyes and he's got makeup on because he's having a party with all of the attractive young women from the kingdom. Yeah, um, he's got the wig and the makeup and as as they did back in the old days. Yeah. And again, this is that's the other thing that's kind of intriguing about this. You know, the animated film from 91 is sort of generic fairy tale France. They don't necessarily lock in a period or a time this is 1740 i mean that that's you know that's where the production design is set and not only that this is set in the south of france uh in fact supposedly somewhere around villeneuve set about the easy time for of you to Louis say the 15th so uh that explains the way people addressed at the ball that sort of thing but for me what intrigues me is, again, you know, it's like, look, we want you to know right up front we have Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey in this movie. So pay attention. You'll get to see him again. You know, um, <laughs> so, you know, to, to me, the this first scene, uh, you know, it, it wasn't so bad the second time, because, of course, going into this movie the first time as a fan of the 91 film, I'm looking for all the changes. I'm like, how are they going to do this? Are they going to mess it up? Are they going to do a great job? And so to me, right off the bat, it felt a little self-indulgent because I'm expecting just the backstory the prince and then all of a sudden you get a, this lavish party with the choreography with all the dances and camera movements sweeping in and out of the ballroom and to me it just felt a little self-indulgent for the sake of you know being lavish and and so i, I didn't necessarily need that dance scene to set things up i don't know what you well i think they were trying to get you to sympathize with all the the staff who'd been kind of accidentally swept up in the punishment for his douchebaggery. And so I, so I get what they were going for. Although I gotta say overall, I liked this movie, but all the new stuff did nothing for me. Every time they went to something new, I was, it to me, it was a snooze fest. It it really took me out of it. I didn't think that what they added really added a whole lot. Well, I like the choice. So I like the choice. Again, the backstory, developing the backstory of these characters is something I really appreciated. I didn't necessarily need this whole dance scene, but I get what they're doing, and that's fine. And again, the second time, I, I was expecting it. So you were fine. dancing. Yeah, because well, yeah, I was the dance-along version. <laughs> but um, one thing that I really appreciated was him being older, because there's there's always some confusion and, and a bit of a weird issue surrounding the original film. So in the original, when people do the math, and, and again, it's all kind of up in the air, but when people do the math, the original prince is 10 or 11 years old. And so you either have, if, if he's frozen in time, he basically has the mentality of a 10 or 11 year old who's never really 
developed past that, you know? Right. And so the question is, is he frozen in time or does he grow up? Because obviously it's before this 21st birthday, he has to fall, make someone fall in love. And so, you know, it's always just a, a weird question of like, well, then why is Chip still a kid? Because if the prince goes from 10 or 11 to 21, how is Chip a six-year-old? You know, like there's really weird time issues sure. at play. I mean, I guess if you really want to delve into it, you could make the argument that like, well, Cup's like the inanimate objects don't age over time, but an animal would. Oh, I've ne- that actually is really insightful because I've never heard that theory. Yeah. But anyway, so I like how they made him just an adult right off the bat or a young adult. You know, right. I, I like that because you're not dealing with then why is a kid pushing away an old lady at, at 10 or 11? Because honestly, if you're a 10 year old kid, you know, alone in your castle, do you really expect strangers like at this point in time? who knows who's coming to attack you or do whatever like he's yeah. the kid's 10 so jim do you have any insight on the original like what they were trying to do with that uh, beginning it's so strange that it actually went down into that open trash pit that i laughingly call a library in the basement and <laughs> dug out the screenplay that linda wolverton uh wrote uh obviously with howard ashman's help for beauty and the beast and i have the draft here from uh, June of 1990. This was when they were actually going to animate the opening of the film, when they didn't run out of time and money and have to do that entire sequence as a series of um, stained glass windows. I mean, it was it's very effective, and it, it you know sort of telescopes that action and gets you right you know two bells stepping out of your cottage and right into the song bell. But if you guys you, you want to hear it, or absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so this is the, they, it's noted as the prologue, and it starts off with an ornate storybook opens on an illustration of a beautiful white shining castle that looks down upon a lush green countryside. Once upon a time, there lived a spoiled, self-centered little boy who would one day grow to rule a kingdom. In full animation, we see an 11, so we have an age here, an 11-year-old child. Uh, who is being dressed and fussed over by a slew of harried servants. But the boy is having, the boy is making it impossible for them. He's sick and tired of getting all dressed up, sick and tired of being polite, sick and tired of boring old ceremonies. His two regents try to explain that a wise woman respected throughout the land is coming to pay him a visit. The wise woman used to give advice to his parents, and some say she has magical powers. I don't care. It's my castle, and I'm only going to do what I want to the boy pushes the servants away. Just try and stop me. Uh, the boy runs through the courtyard where he collides with what looks like an old beggar woman. She's coming up the walkway carrying a basket of flowers. He knocks her to the ground. The courtiers gasp. Uh, servants run up to help her to her feet. The old woman levels her gaze at the boy. She's a craggy old crone, but with the wisdom of the ages in her eyes. I'm waiting for an apology, she says. The boy seems surprised. He laughs. You can wait all day. You're not going to apologize? He crosses his arms stubbornly. I don't have to. She smiles patiently. I'll give you one more chance. The boy's temper flares. Why should I say I'm sorry to some old beggar woman? I don't care about you. He angrily kicks her basket, scattering flowers in the dirt. Fierce power emanates from her eyes as the wise woman gazes deep into his soul. I can see that you care for nothing. You love no one but yourself. Why should I? The boy answers arrogantly. She shakes her head. Then you are no better than a beast. The old, the wise woman raises her arms. She glows with power and magic. The boy gasps. His eyes go wide and he bolts back into the castle. He flees past the regents who apologize to the wise woman on his behalf. Forgive him. He's just a child. 
It's like a child in need of the lesson, she answers. Please, please, we, we can't let you harm her. And I warn you not to interfere. Heedless of her warning, the regents block her way. She waves an arm at them, and they are transformed into objects, a mantle clock and a candelabra. She continues after the fling boy, transforming any and all who get in her way. The frightened boy runs through the castle. Looking over his shoulder, he dashes into the safety of his own room, shoving furniture in front of the door and hiding in a corner. Moments later, the wise woman appears in front of him. He cowers behind a chair. Since you are no better than a beast, then you deserve to look like one. She waves her arm, and the boy is transformed into a monstrous creature, half boy, half beast. She takes a single rose from her basket. It begins to glow with enchantment. This rose will bloom until your 21st birthday. If you can learn to love another and earn their love in return by the time the rose withers, then the spell will be broken. If not, you are doomed to remain a beast forever. She places the enchanted rose in an empty vase on the table. I will leave you with that and a gift. She reaches into the basket again and emerges with an ornate golden mirror. She places it on the table next to the rose. This enchanted mirror will show you any part of the wide world you wish to see. Look well, for it's a world you can no longer be a part of. And in a flash of mystical light, the old wise woman is gone. The beast child races desperately through the castle, up to the highest tower. He looks down to see her disappear in a deep, enchanted mist that is now surrounding the castle. I'm sorry, he cries. Please, please come back. I'm sorry. And as the beast child peers desperately out through the, the bars, we pull back to, and we're, that's where Belle steps out of her cottage. Wow. Cool. That's, that's really insightful, actually, yeah. and it does answer a couple of questions. So it's been a long time since I've seen the, the animated version. Did mm. we know where the mirror came from before? No. Okay, I didn't think we did, but I didn't want to like, he just put that out has there. It. Yeah, yeah that's, a, so, that's one question. And then the other yeah. one is that, uh, that most people have asked is, why on earth did the Enchantress turn all the servants who were just doing their job into inanimate objects? And Jim just answered it. Anyone who got in, his, in her way was turned into an object. Yeah, that's really interesting, Jim. I'm glad you found that because that that does actually make a lot of sense. And and again, the child being kind of a, a petulant little brat, you know, it's not just like he was a good kid, but it was like my my parents told me never to answer the door. Like he obviously was just kind of a jerk. Yeah, they, they definitely like doubled down on him being a. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's so funny is it was I it was actually supposedly Kirk Weiss, Gary Tarzo and Kirk Weiss, who who wound up directing the movie, who. You know, sort of confronted Howard Ashman about, you know, well, first of all, if it's a little kid being changed into a monster, isn't he going to end up looking like Eddie Munster? You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> sort of like, you know, half beast, half monster. So it's just sort of like, you know, and, and more to the point, isn't it kind of a cheap way to get an audience's sympathy to hurt a child? And evidently, Ashman really did, you know, I mean, he was, it was very invested in this opening of the movie and was very pissed off at the guys after <laughs> they did that. But but in the end, it, it, it had to go because, again, they just ran out of time and ran out of money. I mean, you know, well, Jim, I mean, I'm sure, you know, they I mean, they worked on this movie for like six months and scrapped everything because uh, they they completely changed the look of this movie. So, I mean, think of all that time of, of, of having all your animators and your creatives for six months work on a movie and all your art concept and they just threw it out. Well, I, you know, I've talked with Don Hahn, the producer of the movie, a number of times, and he said, look, they kept the release date locked. You know, it was always November Thanksgiving 1991. 
And so by the time they fixed the story and got this thing turned around, they had 11 months to animate it. And as a direct result, I mean, you know, there's the famous cheat at the end where you you finally get to see, you know, the Beast and Belle dance together. And, you know, that's the 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 repurposed animation from Prince Philip and, and Princess Aurora dancing at the end of Sleeping Beauty. In fact, you know, at the very beginning of the film, because, again, they had no time, they had no money. And they figured, you know, we can't just have pictures of stained glass windows. So they do the tracking shot in and on the castle. And, you know, they show you forest creatures. That's Bambi and his mom. You know, just sort of like, <laughs> get him in there. Just That's funny. Know, Interesting. Whatever convinces people, this is an animated movie. Go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I think that that's, again, really interesting, the way that they did that with the intro. And I like the stained glass version better, honestly. And, I mean, I know that it leaves a couple of questions, but I like them kind of quickly getting through the intro about no, no, the no, prince. No, and Don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that, ver- I, that, that version's you know, ridiculously effective. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, this is fun to read and, and you know, sure. but at the same time that that's five minutes of animation. Easy, yeah. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, and you know, it's just, <laughs> so, um, I think it would, it answers questions, but it also kind of would have changed my opinion about the Prince. And I think I don't, I don't want to know, about his backstory i don't want to know that he's a brat i don't want to know if he's good or bad you know i kind of like to learn who the beast is through the story and, well, and the songs and everything. Which, so in this movie did you buy again we are what two-thirds into the movie and we suddenly get you know the the objects telling us you know the beast you know backstory well he's mean because his mother died and his dad was a tyrant and it's <laughs> like you know, really, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's, so this is the Strasbourg version. You know, well, he has to have a motive for being a prick. <laughs> so, you know, let me, yeah, let me, I mean, you know. I, I liked getting the backstory just because, I mean, it it was better than not having one. Because, again, I mean, in that intro, you had your reasoning that he was just kind of a brat growing up as a kid. And that's how he was treated as royalty. And in this version, we have that his mother was kind, but the dad was a jerk. And, I mean, I can kind of get that, though. I mean, if you're raised by your dad and your dad's a... How are you going to grow up, you know? I guess, I mean, I, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I honestly think this is, in fact, I, I credit Nancy. This is Nancy's review of the live act Beauty and the Beast was like, this is 90% of a great movie. And then it's like 10% of what the fuck? You know, just so, <laughs> you know, like, um, yeah, I, I think that's where I landed too, where it's like oh, so much of the new stuff just, it just didn't resonate with me. And, and I don't say that as a, as like a purist, like how dare you touch it. Sure. I think it's funny that they're making all these live action movies. Cause I remember after, I guess after maybe a bug's life came out after it became pretty clear that computer animation was going to make the hand drawn stuff seem really antiquated. I remember saying to people then, if Disney was smart, what they would do is they would grab the soundtrack, the audio tracks from those old movies, and completely create new computerized animation and just drop in the old audio track. So can you imagine seeing Peter Pan but computer animated like like a Pixar movie? And like you wouldn't have to change a thing from a storytelling set. You just need to reanimate it. Yeah, you I know? think oh, that is so scary that you say that because you are literally in the Venn diagram as to why they make these movies. I mean, there's, I've heard folks at the studio basically say this is the equivalent of dealing with kids in the 1980s who wouldn't watch black and white movies, so that's why the yeah. studios colorized them. Yeah. You know, for, from it, it turns out, according to Disney's market survey, that there's a whole generation of kids 
who love CG films, love the Pixar films, love Blue Sky, you know, what Illumination does. And when they look at these, these, you know, they, 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 everything from, you know, Snow White right up until like, you know, Home on the Range, it's like, well, they all must have been made in the 1940s because they look old. That, you know, that's crazy just, to me because, you know, Jim, I honestly just got used to CG. Like mm-hmm. growing up, growing up as a kid of the 90s, growing up with all these great animated films, again, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, Little Mermaid was the first movie I ever saw in theaters. So I grew up with these animated films and they're so beautiful and seeing them remade mastered and, and upscaled in blu-ray to show you the difference in age between kevin and i the first movie i thought saw in the theaters was the apple dumpling gang so <laughs> okay I, I could top all of you guys you know, just again, first film i saw in theaters city you know, lights okay, again <laughs> as a kid sword in the stone all right 63 nice. okay? wow um so and, and you know, again, you know, the weird thing is, you you all of us have you know weird affection for that first film we saw because again, yeah. you know, the whole going to the theater, it gets dark with all these people and giant screen and, and get to see this sort of thing. But the other thing that drives these choices, and remember, you know, that, that I'm sure you guys have seen just over the the past couple of weeks, you know, the the announcements of the you know Favreau's. You know, they, they much like the Jungle Book, the Lion King, he's starting to get off the ground. And and, he, and he's doing things where it's like he's got Donald Glover doing the voice of adult Simba, which like, OK, good, smart choice. I can get that. But yeah. then did you see who he got for Mufasa? James, James, Earl, James Jones. Earl Jones. He's yeah, like, April sort of like yeah. so the very thing you were saying about just take the, you know, the, 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 right. the, the hand drawn and do it live, you know, do it with CG. It's like Maybe I need to get my resume it. together. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, the thing is, though, and obviously he'll be revoicing it. They won't just use the audio. But if you have James Earl Jones alive, I mean, you can't replace that voice. They use him as Vader, even though he, the voice, you know, yeah. like you cannot as I, long as James Earl Jones is around. I, I can't else. imagine. Sorry, I, I have to interrupt here because Dave sure. Filoni told me this great story when they finally, you know, they're doing season two of Star Wars Rebels. And so that actually starts off with, with Darth Vader. And so they, they and, and, you know, again, as part of the Lucasfilm acquisition, they got, you know, they, they, they're getting the band back together. So they reach out to James Earl Jones and, you know, would you do Vader? And it's like, yeah, sure. And so he's, he's in the studio with James Earl Jones and, and Jones is doing Vader for the first time in, he, he said, I think the last time I did this was 13 years ago. And, you know, so he's, you, you get it. So he's in the booth talking like James Earl Jones and, kind of underconfident about doing Vader again and it's like you walk me through this right you're gonna you, you'll tell me how to do this again and in Filoni's you're doing it I mean you, yeah you're him. <laughs> there's really no difference like yeah, yeah, I mean his voice exactly. is just, yeah I, but I just love the whole notion of you know you're gonna have to direct me here I forget how to do the character it's like <laughs> just talk you know yeah. just now just talk. if who would you get with a voice like that like my first thought is Liam Neeson, but you can't have Liam Neeson voice Mufasa. He was already Aslan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very you know? true. It's like that would be you know, weird. Who's our go-to go-to list for lion characters? You know, it's yeah, like, like who's got a voice with gravitas like that? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I honestly can't think of anybody yeah. off the top of my head. Do you know we were talking about Aladdin earlier? Do Do you have any idea who who they're looking at for the genie? You know that that's the thing. All that that Guy Ritchie is willing to talk about right now is that you know he's definitely looking to cast. He wants it to look authentic to the world. In fact, it, it's it's interesting that both 
the Mulan live action that's being prepped, uh, same thing. It's like, you know, Sarah, you've heard that there was a script initially out there where she had, you know, they were going to give her an Anglo love interest this time around. And, you know, somebody with a brain at Disney is like, yeah, yeah. They will eat us alive. Don't yes. do that. So yeah. the genie right now, it's, it's, it, again, it's just a question of, well, the Aladdin Broadway musical is proven. You know, this character can move on past Williams, but at the same time, it's just sort of like you need, I mean, the genie enters about a third of the way through the movie, and then he's the engine that drives the thing, yeah. uh, both with the humor as well as the kind of the pathos of, you know, the whole, you know, again, you know, that, that's that's why everyone loves that moment where Aladdin throws away his third wish and frees the genie. I mean, that's 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 a great moment. I'll have to, I'll have to stop you there because technically the genie shows up in the very beginning of the movie because well, it's yeah, confirmed but... that he is the, the story, the narrator. Well, but, but, but again, perceptually, he did not. Yeah. You know, Although in the Broadway play, he shows up in care. He shows up as the genie at the beginning. Yep. Yep. I think because they know that the kids yeah. that go to see that and the parents that paid an ungodly amount of money money to take their kids to see a broadway play those kids are going to be like where the hell's the genie right you know we were talking one episode two episodes ago and we got on the topic of who would play the genie and my suggestion because you need a comedian that's very manic and and can riff and come up with stuff off the top of his head and and capture that energy but you don't want somebody who's just gonna be an impersonation of robin williams you know what i mean and uh and i thought Kevin Hart would be a great choice because he has that motor mouth thing going and it would be such a different direction that it would be almost impossible to draw a comparison to Robin Williams, you know? You know, that's actually a pretty inspired choice. And and more Thank to the you. point, he could play he he could do good again because there's there's a melancholy to the genie that that has to be there that um, yeah, that that's a great you know. Well, I hope somebody at Disney listens to that because that's a great yeah. idea. Okay. And it would it would open up the film to a whole to you know to a whole new demo too. Not that black people don't like Disney movies, but it would it would be an invitation of like this isn't just a Lily White thing. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And and but again, I, you have to assume if you look at you know what Guy Ritchie did with the you know the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock movies. Um, this wasn't going to be a traditional Aladdin anyway. In fact, that that's you know that he, 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 Richie was talking about that you know he's done film about con men about street rats. So it's like okay, sure. I know this character. I can make this story work from that angle. From and, you know, and, some- yeah, and I will say like it's funny you say that that he's got that on his resume because I I think that. That ultimately, and we've talked about this in the podcast as well, has been the true genius of what of what Marvel has done with their Marvel movies is that they found directors. They realize that each property within it within the Marvel Cinematic Universe is its own genre film. And so they've gone out and with Iron Man, it's like you got this main character who's kind of a but you like him anyway. And he's got this patter that's nonstop. Let's get the guy who made swingers. Thor is kind of this fake Shakespearean thing. Let's get Kenneth Branagh. Like each each movie, they've kind of gone out and found the guy that already knows how to make that genre of film and said, just make it like that, you know. And so to get to to realize that Aladdin is about a con man, essentially, and street rats and to find a guy that knows how to make those movies is is a very, very smart choice. 
Oh, I agree. I agree. You know, in fact, it's it's kind of ironic we're having this conversation right now because um, in 2007 was <laughs> remember Marvel made this announcement that that you know they were going to make ten movies, you know, and that they were all going to be interconnected, and you know they were you know for the first time ever they were going to own the movies, and everybody laughed because it was like, oh come on, you're Marvel, <laughs> you can't possibly you know you you're the guys who signed away signed away the rights for spider-man and the x-men you know in, in fact I, yeah. I was just reading a story where uh Maisel, the executive who came in and set this thing whole thing up as he's walking in the door to pitch them on this whole idea you know they're in the process of signing off the film rights to captain america and thor and he's like no 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 we're gonna need those you know just, <laughs> wow. just you you can't do that and Saved by the and, bell and I just remember back there it's like you're Marvel. You're going to hopelessly screw this up. And and look at where we are now. I mean, you know, well, and it, I think everybody's I think what, chasing that model. Well, and I think what they did right and where and, and where the other people are making a mistake in chasing that model is they want they want to hop on four movies in, you mm-hmm. know, and and they don't realize the degree of of patience that Marvel had that they oh, no. built it. Oh, no. And they they built it right. And they they started they didn't go straight to. We need to put out four movies a year, and it needs to be this huge. Inter- they they like they gave you Iron Man, and then uh-huh. you waited, and you got the next one. And and DC they can't make they can't finish the movie they're on. Every movie is about setting up the next three movies, and mm. nobody cares about the next three movies because the one that you're watching sucks. Yeah, I did. I you know I, I still I still remember when they announced they were casting Robert Downey Jr. and everyone was like what and then at the same time remember you know remember from the first time you saw that movie and the wonderful way it ended with the press conference and yes it's like yeah eh, i'm iron man and it's just sort of like i have never you know they, for those of us who've, who've seen dozens upon dozens of superhero movies i've never seen this movie before you know and it's yeah. just sort of like i can't wait for the next one of these i mean it's just, you know that's the feeling you want coming out of a movie it's just sort of like no more story more and yeah and, and again, what was great about that to, to then get that that tag scene at the end with Samuel Jackson? It was just sort of like, holy crap, there's more coming. I'm yeah, sure that, to find a way to get people to stay through the credits now in every single movie. Yeah, yeah like know, just, looking for that, expecting it. Um, my you kids know, never a, want to sit through the credits, or never want to not. They never yeah. want to leave during the credits on any movie I take them to. It's like they know all the gaffers by name. It's crazy. <laughs> and I, so, I have to tell you, for in fact, by the way, do you guys ever go out to CinemaCon at, at Vegas? Or we don't got that kind of money. they don't fly us anywhere (laughs) you have to go at some point you have to go because it's just sort of like when you were talking about movies with guys who run theaters in fact for example they hate exhibitors hate the tag scene because again they, they can't got, clean the theater <laughs> yeah. no that's exactly they get you know, the, yeah. the 16 year old with the, the trash barrel and they you know the, the room is waiting you know, i was in a, still sitting there um, i was at a screening the other day and the screening was running late it was like a promotional screening and they were like we have to wait for this movie to end mm-hmm. and they were like well can you just kill the credits and they were like no we can't kill the credits because the movie was 
uh, was Kong Skull Island, and they were like, "We can't kill the credits because there's a post credit scene, and if we do, they're all going to want refunds. They're all sitting there waiting for the movie sure. to end so and they can see the final scene." Godzilla and, and Ghidra, and you know, yeah, could, ugh, yeah. Again, I know we are we are in tangent hell here, guys. <laughs> it's what we do. It's what we do. So let's jump back into to the movie proper. So I mean, basically, and, and we she don't kisses him the end. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> we, we don't have to go beat for beat for beat, but I think we should kind of just group things into here so emma watson is bell never heard of her yay or nay she was Uh, fine she didn't blow my mind but uh but i wasn't like this is awful either you know Mm. she she to me she did an admirable but she was serviceable i I thought she i thought the look was fine i thought her voice was good it's just really really hard to match Paige o'hara because she is so good her vocal range if you go back and you listen to bell Paige o'hara and you listen to emma watson's there's no comparison like emma watson and and no i'm not trying to diss on emma watson i mean she did a great job preparing for the role and practicing and everything but her voice just isn't you know it's just not as good as Paige o'hara's and so you know the the fan in me was just always comparing and again i like these versions but when you compare it's just a really tough thing to do yeah well you know she was brought into this project by alan horn i get her that's the the president of warner brothers during the the whole time the harry potter movies were being made in fact he was the one who kept her on the series emma wanted to bail as they were coming up to uh goblet of fire and it just sort of like then he was like no you don't understand this this is this is going to be this series of seven or eight films that that you know nobody's ever done this before and you really want to be part of this and wow if you talk with the folks at disney studios they know from their own research that third up to a half of the audience turned out because it was emma watson because oh my in gosh, fact, this yeah. is one of the reasons they chased her for cinderella they wanted her to get her to play the title role in that and she you know it just it, it, you know at that point they, again same thing like the mulan script they had uh, they'd written this this different character for her to fall in love with a, a, a sort of a dissolute knight uh, rather than the prince, and she was like, "Nah." And and but Alan came after her, pursued her for Beauty and the Beast, and she was like, "As soon as he said the title, it's like I'm in. It's my favorite film. I grew up on that movie. You know, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Shut up!" Wow, so, and and it, it's great casting. I mean, she I, she pulls off the look of Belle. She pulls off she pulls off the character, and and her voice really is good. So I don't mean to you know underplay how good she is. It's, you know, it's just hard to compare. But then for the marketing side, like you just mentioned, the fact that half of the box office, half of the five hundred million dollars that's made in under two weeks, is because she's Hermione. You know, it's genius. What did you think of the her being the inventor? The whole making the washing. You know, she invents the washing machine so she can teach the other girl to read. And then that somehow upsets the entire village because, you know, oh, my God, she's teaching girls to read. I, Uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, this is the 1700s, so it's a different time. But in real life, you know, this is 2017. So I get it. I get what they're trying to do. I think they handled it pretty well. Like it didn't since I know what they were trying to do. I know that it's a bit forced, but I think they handled it well enough where it really didn't come off leaving a bad taste in my mouth. But, you know, in 2017, you can't have just a pretty face. You can't have Belle 
meaning beauty. You can't just have a pretty girl that reads books but also needs to be saved and rescued all the time. So she's an inventor. She's tough. She can stand up to Gaston. She doesn't say, oh, you know, I'll see you next week. I'm, I'm busy, Gaston. She says, I'm not going to marry you and slams the door in his face. You know, that's that's just women, you know, today. And, and I think that's the role model that young girls need to see in 2017, not the 25-year-old version. Okay. Yeah, like, but she right, was. Valid. But I, you know, I would make the argument that I think Belle was was never just a pretty face. I think that's why there was. You know, I mean, she was hyper literate. You know what I mean? And so, sure. I mean, I, I kind of felt like, you know, and, and it, it didn't ruin the movie for me or anything. But I, I just felt like it. It's, at some point, it starts to feel like pandering. I and again, I get I, I, knowing what they're going for. That's the only reason why it came off a bit forced. But I think it was handled well. And in the original, yeah, the reading was really the only thing. But it's like you can't just show girls that hey, you know, because you can read and you're smarter than people. Like they want to show you above and beyond. You can fight and you can invent things and you can be you know, smarter than the guys in all these regards. And so, you know, I, I just think it was a necessary choice to, to upgrade the character. It was necessary. Sure. I do wonder at some point if, like, we have an overcorrection on our hand. Like, every movie goes to this point <laughs> to where it's like, like, is this generation of boys going to grow up and be like, well, boys suck. <laughs> like, and women it's do everything. So, oh, God. It's so funny you say this because it's like if you understand Disney history the reason Belle is the way she is is because of Ariel. I mean, think about it. Then Little Mermaid comes out in 89. You have this 16-year-old girl who meets a guy and, you know, and literally, you know, from the second she meets a guy, she's willing to turn her back on her family, leave her dad, you know, and, and you know, put it all behind her because, you know, she's fallen in love with this handsome guy. So that was actually the complaint from the feminist community, you know, just effective. That's a really bad lesson to give girls. So if you look at Belle, it's like she's ridiculously loyal to her father. Or, you know, it's, it's yeah. like, you know, in fact, she offers to trade places with him at the castle. And, and, you know, she's fallen in love with the beast, but sees he's sick in the mirror and I must go to him. So, you know, she's family first. And at the same time, because the whole notion of Ariel doesn't seem to have any skills. It's all right. Belle's got to read. Belle's got to, you know. But then the weird thing is coming out of the 91 animated uh, beast is that people were complaining about. Oh my God! If you, you you look back at it, it's like Belle is staying in an abusive relationship. I mean, the beast <laughs> is so terrible to her. Stockholm it, syndrome. You know, it's so that's what know, people it, cry. Exactly, you know yeah. that it's a Stockholm syndrome story, yeah. and how what and kind of a lesson is that? And so they do make her so much stronger in this version, where that isn't really a question anymore. That's absolutely, and in fact, but the funny thing is, you, now you jump ahead to Aladdin, so it's now when a guy you have Aladdin when he lies to a girl. You see that he agonizes over about it. He feels bad. You know, just sort of, you know, it's like each, you know, that's the funny thing is if you look at each of those movies, each of them is trying to correct the complaints about the movie that came previously. So and um, I think sometimes I, I feel I feel bad for filmmakers in that they're rich and famous. Well, there's that. And then uh, <laughs> Poor guys. But then, like every every character somehow is supposed to be all things to all people or yeah. it rep, you know, like, oh, today it'd be an impossible task I don't know to be a filmmaker you, in 2017. Like, you know, that some, just... I mean, if you if 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 the if the box we're painting filmmakers into is that every character has to be brilliant and smart and always make wonderful decisions or it's a poor reflection on whatever category or label they might get lumped into or assigned or like, not or then, whatever label they yeah, aren't then how do you like you yeah. know like i i do think they kind of had a redemption story arc 
for LeFou because they feel like if he's gay, that we can't do that. And it's like, but at some point, why can't you? Like, well, I get if like if you if we live in a world where there were almost no gay characters, and then you make a gay character, and he's he's a villain. Like, you're like, whoa! Well, I don't think that should be your only representation. But as we get further and further away from that point, it's kind of like a guess who's coming to dinner? And guess who's coming to dinner? It, that was a very controversial choice in that time. So they took Sidney Portier and they made his character like over the top perfect. Like it was like he was a doctor and he worked in Africa and he helped dying kids who were born with flippers for hands. Like everything had yeah. to be like he is just the ultimate example of human goodness. And it's like but that also is like you're also giving those actors like really boring roles to play and then you're then you're like why don't they get awards and it's like because they have awful roles to play mm, yeah the Got other it. thing i just a quick note here about lefou that according to condon and again you know that, that as they were shaping the screenplay here uh, the thinking was that lefou was going to be the contemporary voice in the film i mean but by, by both raising his iq and having him somewhat outside the story, kind of observing this and being in the middle of this change, that, that he was going to be, in a lot of ways, you know, sort of the, the, the voice in the audience. And, and again, you know, as you pointed out, that, that line in Kill the Beast, you know, where he, he, you're seeing him turn, you're seeing him think. Um, right. But, again, look, I enjoy Josh Gad, and I, for me, it worked, I know, for a lot of people, you know, just because of what was said, we're constantly going through the movies. Is that the especially gay moment? No, hang on. Or is that right? The well, gay that that's you know, the you bring up yeah. a good point, and that that is exactly the issue. Is that if they were going to do it, they should have doubled down. They yeah. were too afraid to double down and make him openly gay. So what they tried to do is they tiptoed around it and made a character that's kind of flam- I mean uh, maybe offensively flamboyant yeah and, I, and and questionably is he gay is he not gay and then at the end he dances with the guy for two seconds it's like if you're gonna make an openly gay character embrace it and make it right what's the controversy for yeah no I agree I I, I said it when we talked about it on a, on a past episode I thought that his uh I, I thought it was just as offensive to gay people because he's so prancy he's like kind of every gay stereotype that it's like it's weird that they're making this big deal about they have you know an officially gay character in this disney movie and really the the most concrete thing i'm making air quotes over concrete the most concrete thing to point to is as proof that he's gay is like well look how he talks you know like that's why i I don't think he's not an openly gay character because there's nothing open about it other than what you infer which may be correct but you're still inferring it yeah Yeah. i guess i i have seriously flawed gaydar then because i just got the sense that they actually bent the needle the other direction that it just sort of the the gayness of the character is the i mean he's clearly enamored of gaston but it's just sort of again it's it's undercooked it's you know, the whole thing of him hugging him a little too long after the song. People tell me I'm clingy. You know, so I mean, yeah. I think a lot of that just comes from the, you know, the kind of performer Josh Gad is that, you know, remember that, you know, this is the Book of Mormon guy who, you yeah. know, you know, just it would form weird attachments to his, his fellow brothers and in, in, again out in Africa. So I think um, he did a great job with the role. The thing is, he 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 put his own spin on it, but the character was still written to say certain things and do certain things. Yeah. And it's not Josh Gad's fault. I think he's a great actor. I think he's hilarious. But I just think that they wrote the character wrong. He was kind of like early season Smithers. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, that is it's the okay. exact same. It is the exact same relationship. As yeah, though, I mean, it's it questionable. It, it's you know, kind like, of like Smithers yeah. and and uh, Tonto. Like, oh. you know, like how they've kind of updated Tonto to where like Tonto is the brains and the Lone Ranger is the dumb one. Like yeah. it's I mean, Gaston was always the dumb one, but he was dumber. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and, and it's funny. I mean, LeFou literally translates into the fool. So to make him smart just for the sake of doing it, that does kind of go against the character. Maybe it's uh, ironic the way they always call big guys tiny. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just I, I again. This is probably admitting that I was dropped as a child on my head too many times. But I, I really kind of liked Lone Ranger. You know, just sort of the it, the fact the kind of left handedness of it. And and remember that was you know originally supposed to be the sort of the twin of of Pirates of the Caribbean. And you know, I, I've actually got a copy of the script where the Butch Cavendish, you know, the whole thing where he eats the heart and that sort of thing is. That's because he's a werewolf, and that's, oh, that's what? different. Okay, <laughs> that's actually why I would explain it, the silver bullet. I guess the first yeah. script for the Lone Ranger. The reason that the Lone Ranger uses silver bullets is because he's not just killing bad men; he's killing bad men yeah. who are werewolves. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, that and, might have actually I, been a better movie. And I will say, I think the Lone Ranger was a misfire, but I don't. I didn't think it was as bad as it got made out to be. Like, no, I, no, I, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, I, mean, I, I remember I, that. You yeah. know, I, and I, I remember I, everybody I, in the room looking at me like I was crazy because they thought I was going to hate it. And I was like, it was fine. They just yeah. needed it. Just it just didn't quite work, but it wasn't horrendous. I, I liked. Actually, I've actually got the a idea of it. Who's who's a big time Disney collector? I mean, as in he's one of these guys who buys. You know, has the basement filled with toys that are still in their boxes. That you know, he just bought bought them for for trading further on down the line and he remains totally convinced that the lone ranger is the next rocketeer that you know you, you know 15 20 years down the line this is going to be playing on television or going you know, or, to or our phones or whatever it is we're watching at that point and people are going to rediscover it and love it and he that's why when everything was marked down to 10 cents on the dollar he cleaned out every disney store <laughs> i was going to say the disney store you could have cleaned up in that 90 yeah, percent off worth of stuff yeah. and it's all in his basement all you know wow. sealed in plastic waiting <laughs> for that moment when you know Good suddenly luck. people want to have disney lone ranger stuff so see i think the movie that that will be like that and there weren't that many toys made for it was real steel oh see that was a fun movie i like that in it the was, same kind of way that i like pacific rim yeah. i know you don't like pacific rim as much but it's one of those just it's giant robots punching each other it's yeah. fun and it was such a good story though on top but of it was good and yeah. hugh jackman's great yeah. i mean that movie is is i think that's one of the big issues that we're having when when critics are overly critical of films mm -hmm. and not judging them based on what they're trying to achieve you know not every movie is citizen kane right and i'm not saying you shouldn't make the best version of whatever you're setting out to do but sometimes they do a really good version and people compare it to something else that is yeah i'm a big know. believer that you have to judge a movie on what it's attempting to be yeah you know animal house is a great movie but no it's not citizen kane it's an it's a great animal house right know? so well, let's jump back into beauty and the beast yeah so okay so uh luke evans is gaston i will have to say that he is probably my favorite part of this movie i think luke evans did this character so much justice and may even top the animated version hmm I really loved his performance. I thought he could sing, 
but I also thought he could act and being the chauvinist and, and uh, you know, just loving himself and looking in the mirror. I thought he really pulled it off. And again, I mean, these are characters that I've grown up watching. And so Gaston's a, is big shoes to fill and the voice and, and you know, that whole personality. And, and man, I was really, really impressed with Luke Evans. I don't know. I'm a big Robbie Benson fan. Wasn't he the beast? Yeah. He, Isn't that what you said? That when- Gaston. Oh, I thought you said the beast. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. Okay, then that that case, I do agree with you. Yeah, I I, I think <laughs> I think Luke Evans was awesome. I was like, wow, because he's a larger than life character, and yeah. especially when you you uh, cast someone who, I mean, sure, Luke Evans may be ripped, but he's not as big as Gaston in the cartoon. That's a huge guy. So when yeah. you get someone that's just a an average looking, but you know, really in good shape guy. You, you're like okay he doesn't quite have the height or the build you know he's got to have the voice and he's got to have the personality and man he sells it yeah no i agree i th- i think that he really threaded the needle in terms of like capturing the spirit of the cartoon without becoming a character car- yeah yeah like i i thought he 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 of the th- of the four main characters i think that he was probably the best yeah and and he never comes off as silly because that's what we would do if you try to be the big bulky you know gaston from the cartoon you're going to come off as just a really really terrible cheesy actor right and he didn't and that was what was so great about it yeah it would would be too over the top to see a, a real live human do that it would what did you guys think about okay the song so the songs again we've talked about it i mean they've got a built in broadway musical from the moment it was released in 91 beautiful songs by ashman and uh, Mankin. these songs obviously they've updated they've they've changed the arrangements a little bit the way they sing them how do you guys think they compared the original numbers i mean i would say that i like the original songs better but i i wasn't disappointed with these renditions they were for the most part fairly faithful i don't think the average person outside of just a diehard fan that is intimately familiar with the soundtrack of the original i don't think the average person is going to notice any major differences between them you know it's not like all of a sudden you know be our guest was reggae you know yeah I mean? like, right it, it was they were pretty they were fairly faithful they were pretty I, straightforward. I, I was happy with them I and mean, again i think i just i just love the original too much and, yeah. and not saying that just because of nostalgia i mean i think the original is so good right yeah um you know i thought they were definitely i did a good job jim what about you well i again my problem is that you know when i like days in the sun the new song for you know when the creatures you know or the the enchanted objects are going to bed it's like my problem is i'm my yardstick is human again which is you know both in the broadway show and in the the enhanced version of Beauty and the Beast was created for the IMAX release. So that's a killer number. And and Days in the Sun, I, I just don't think compares to it. And I guess I have to grade that one on a curve. In fact, I think the thing that, that kind of makes me a little nuts about this is, did you hear that originally Disney wanted to do this Without music, I mean, literally, it was going to be doing the beast. That was going to be what was going to make it different from the animated film is no songs. And oh. Condon was like, "Are you people insane?" Oh, that would have, yeah, that would have killed it. I mean, that would—it's not a strong enough story. Oh. It's oh. just, although I will say, I would have thought that about Cinderella mm-hmm. and and Cinderella with almost no songs because yeah. Cinderella doesn't have uh, aside from bippity boppity, right. you know what I mean? Like Cinderella is not Beauty and the Beast, sure. Aladdin. Like Lion King, I mean, you have to have those songs. Yeah, like even Jungle Book worked in kind of the one song that mattered. Yeah, you know, but yeah, that would have that would have been awful. Now, I've never seen the original. I I was too lazy to 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 look this up. Did they are not the original the Broadway play? 
did they use any of the songs that they because there's no, new songs in the Broadway production, fact, right? That's yeah. you know that that that's look. Eisner was the one who actually first talked about doing a movie version of, you know, a live action movie version of Beauty and the Beast. In fact, I forget which of the, I mean, it might be the first time the film came out on Blu-ray. You know, I, 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 you know how Disney every five years, it's like, this the is the platinum edition. This is the diamond yeah. edition. This is the <laughs> turquoise ring, you know, flannel edition. Oh, I haven't gotten my turquoise flannel ring yet. There you go. Um, <laughs> oh, I got to get that one. But at the end of, uh, you know, one of the making of features, you know, that they, that, here's Eisner. And it's like, you know what we should do? We should do this as a live action movie and take the best of the songs from the Broadway show and, and the, the songs that people love from the movie and, and do this. And it's like, boy, this, I, I really want us to do this someday. And it's sort of like, so if Eisner had been in charge and this had actually gone forward and, and evidently the plan was they were going to wait for the show to finish its Broadway run, never anticipating that it would run on Broadway for 13 years. Right, that it um, would never end. You know, yeah. so, <laughs> in fact, they shut it down so they could move Little Mermaid into the Lunt Fontaine. You know, that, that's, yeah. I want to say that's 2006, 2007. Um, why, why would they not use those songs, though? Like, if they're already out there, they already know that they work and people like them, why would they not import them? Uh, I, I don't, I don't get it, this, other than to just add something new. But No, this is, I hate to say this, but this is, this is the world of Hollywood. And it's like, look, if you put three new songs into the score, chances are... One of them will get nominated for an Academy Award, and and I get that. I would think that they would do what Dreamgirls did. They would write their one new song. They would pull in two songs from Broadway that they know already work, and that you know what I mean. And then that way, if you have you know that way, you don't have to worry about having three clunkers. Like you already know, you got stuff that's been right. road tested. There you must know? have, you know, but I think the problem is, Tom, that the original movie, and even though it only runs an hour and a half, has so many good songs that if you're going to do like a mashup, I mean, you can't have them all because it'd be too long, but what do you cut? Because the songs are so good and it right. is song after song after song. And so I think if they wanted new stuff in, they, and they can't get rid of the old stuff. I mean, I'm not saying they couldn't have worked in, in, yeah, one, but I just think instead yeah. of one of the, th- instead of three new songs, yeah, four. like it was a four. Okay. Yeah. Get, cut it down to one and yeah. bring in three from, or even two and two, like I, Chuck Wool. Chuck Woolery it. Yeah. I think what Jim said is I think he's on the money, though, that they wanted four new songs for four attempts at a, oh, I get a, a that, new but, best song because but, the, the new ones, I, again, I liked Evermore. I know I'm alone here, but like I thought that song was beautiful. The other three, I could never hear again. I would you say know, write your four, write your four, pick your best one, and yeah. then and then go with what works. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you know, you you want to win those awards ultimately to drive box office, and sure. you're, you're not going to yeah. have an issue here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. The, you know, you know this. Like, nobody's going to run out and and buy Beauty and the Beast just because it got nominated for an of Oscar for not, best song. No. Like, it's it like it's going to make all the money no matter what you do, unless you just completely yeah screw the pooch. So basically, I mean, just just going Which through... might be bad wording considering what this movie's about. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> So it, in fact, you know, just to circle back to to the gay LeFou thing, I think it was was Don Hahn who you know who was who was out. It's like now let me get this straight. You people are upset about 
you know, the, a gay LeFou. When basically, this is a movie that celebrates bestiality. You know, it's right? Like yeah. he, he wants to sleep with a buffalo. All right. Now, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and you're worried about the gay supporting <laughs> villain character. It's like, uh. well, I think that's the the kind of double standard or the hip- hypocrisy that we face with most people that take issues with things like that. It, it makes no sense. But I will say, ultimately, the the reason that I think going back to what Tom said about making the film CG instead of live action, that is where this movie probably would have been a little stronger. Again, maybe weaker because you're not seeing people like Emma Watson that are a huge draw. But the difference is that when you have a woman falling in love with a creature in live action, that's a little weird. I mean, yeah. I'm just throwing that out there. It's a little off-putting. But they always also make sure that he reverts to a human before they really move too terribly far but, into the... But she still fell in love sure. with the creature. And what I'm saying is that in, in cartoon form, right, that we all grew up with, I mean, that we've known and loved since 91, it's it's a cartoon, right? So people are more accepting of it. Yeah, When you come to live jarring. action, that's always the struggle because, I mean, the Beast looked okay i thought the animation was decent but you're still bl- he th- i thought he was kind of jerky in spot not as a not as a character but right. like i thought that he was very kind of spasmatic at times like i don't I, yeah, I, yeah it just i think that i mean again it was good but it wasn't great and that's the struggle you're gonna have with a live action film and a beast monster guy you know what i mean, I mean how I also, are you gonna get that right i also think it's ironic that they take these animated films and they say let's let's make a live action version of it and then like 80 percent of it is cg AI, which is really just animation. You know, was it? I'm sorry to to give Dan Stevens some credit. The stories coming off of the set in Shepperton is this poor slob is wearing eight inch long stilts in a performance capture outfit. You know, he has to show up every day to get all those markers put on his face. And there's this great story about you know they they so he and Emma shoot the ballroom scene. And then, you know, they, they, they later in production, they're like, Dan, I'm sorry, can you come in today? You know, we didn't get the face of the beast the way we wanted to during the ballroom scene. And, you know, you're falling in love with her. So, you know, we're going to do that again. And he, he basically had to sit in a chair and move his head. You know, they showed him the, the live action, the reference footage of the beast moving. And so he had to move his head as if he were waltzing while sitting in a chair, falling in love with, you know, again, just with a camera right at him. Emma's like three weeks off the film at this point, and it's just sort of like, oh, you know, I, well, I'm waltzing in a chair. You well, know? <laughs> poor guy. I I heard the story was he had to film the entire movie twice because it was his it was his waist up and then the legs. I heard that so you had like his movement, his facial expressions, and then the the lower half of his body were filmed two separate times. Yikes! <laughs> so I mean, poor guy. I it's nothing oh. against him, you know. I'm just like that. That is. That's awful to have to go through that and do the same performance twice and get that right. But I, I think it was good. I think his performance was good. I think his voice was good. I feel that it was kind of Robbie Benson inspired. Sure. I don't think it quite matches Robbie Benson. I mean, I definitely will say that that the original is so good. But the first time you hear him when he's in the castle and uh, the dungeon and Belle is trying to you know rescue her father, I heard his voice and I'm like, okay, like I can buy it. I didn't go, oh, I hate that voice because yeah. it was very inspired. I would say ultimately. Ultimately, and I and again overall I like the movie but I would say ultimately the movie is a really top-notch tribute band that's that's an excellent analogy I, I, yeah. I can I can totally get behind that one last thing because I, I have to ask what you guys thought of this moment all right it's it's 
the the end of be our guest. All right, you know they were, we're building to the big number, and they suddenly cut to the Taj Mahal like dish cabinet at the end of the table, and the door bursts open, and here's Cogsworth with the turban, and the air fills with colored explosions like out of you know a, a Huli Spring Festival, the the fest you know the celebration of colors, celebration of spring. Tell me, I'm not the only one who thought. You deliberately did that to go after the Indian market. You know, that's an interesting thought. I wasn't thinking that. What I was going to say is Be Our Guest is my number one complaint about the film. And I loved the film. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very good. Uh, obviously, I'm a fan of the original. But I, I've seen this movie twice. I want to see it again. Mm-hmm. But Be Our Guest was, again, too self-indulgent for me. Because in these live-action films, again, they're live-action. We're not in a cartoon. We're in the real world here. And as much fantasy and magic as there is, they're still in a real-world 1700s France. And so Be Our Guest goes from the dining table into CGI-ville, and you just like, where are we? When you're halfway through the song, and you see all the spoons and the dishes doing their thing, yeah. and they're stacked up higher than probably the, the castle is tall. I mean, I'm I'm obviously just over-exaggerating here, but my point is that we've taken this grounded film, and we've taken this one of the best numbers in the movie, but we've traveled to CGI-ville off of the dining room table and out of the kitchen, and I didn't like where we ended up. I thought I thought they just did it because they could, and they wanted to be big and flashy about it, and I don't think it fit the tone. It was like a Busby Berkeley scene. It was mm-hmm. just like, and, and, and then it, it was also almost like, who was the lady that did all the swimming stuff? Esther yes, Williams. Williams. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, it was like, it, I, I, it was almost at that point like watching a kaleidoscope. That's what it was, yeah. exactly. I felt like I was watching a, a kaleidoscope acid trip something like they did in doctor strange with all the colors kind of like, kaleidoscopes did your mother give you <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it was a combination of just a crazy thing and again visually like if i were to watch that on its own i'd be like yes yeah, visually impressive good job computer people right but as for the film i'm like you're telling me we're in the dining room right now no yeah. way and and it just it it it, it was too two out there for yeah me. It, it at that point it just it was just completely surrealistic yeah like there was just it made it, no sense to yeah, be yeah this just, grounded world they were just but doing it because they could if you talk yeah. with anybody associated with the film they 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 say they went that way they buried the needle in that direction for the 3d version you know this was oh all, yeah yeah this was no, all I about convincing the audience that they had to pay 15 dollars a ticket to see <laughs> this and so i i will say i've seen a lot of 3d movies where i take off my glasses because i do that a lot because i don't like 3d and the movie, in large swaths of the film, aren't really all that 3D. And I will say... They're not blurry. Yeah, yeah, every time I took off my glasses in this film, it was very blurry. Like, they obviously really did their 3D rendering on this. When they when they tell you that it's 3D, they're, they're, it's not three scenes, and then the rest of it is just like, make that rock look closer. Like, it was... <laughs> they were... It, they didn't they didn't clash of the Titans it. Like, sure. they, they did oh, it God, for real. Yeah. So, I will... I, I gotta give them credit for that. Yeah. So... Um, but, I mean, really, the plot just pretty much stays the same. So, a couple of differences that I liked. I think I mentioned it earlier, but early on, when, when Belle is, you know, going through the town, and Gaston says, I'm gonna go ask her to be my wife, like, a Instead of doing the big party and the band that LeFou has in the cartoon, he just goes up to her door, but Emma Watson's bell straight up tells Gaston, I'm never going to marry you, and shuts the door in his face. I liked it, you know? Yeah. I, it didn't go over the top like it could have if they tried to recreate the cartooniness. Sure. Also gave Bell that strength. Kevin Klein's Maurice, he is uh, he's an artist. 
instead of an inventor, I guess, mainly. I mean, he tinkers, but he's, yeah, he's more, he's more t- of an artist. Yeah. And he, he leaves to go to town and, you know, he has the wolf fight. I mean, it's, it's basically the same thing as the cartoon. The horse comes back, Belle goes after him and then, uh, you know, trades places with him very much, very much the same. You know, I thought the introduction, I thought the characters, like when we talk about the ancillary characters like uh, Cogsworth and Lumiere, you know, I thought they did a pretty good job. I thought Ian McKellen, I loved him as Cogsworth. I just, I just, I think he's great in the role. Ewan McGregor, you know, I mean, the the English accent was touch and go, but he yeah. was good. He had the charisma. He had the character. What did you guys think? Those are kind of the two big side characters. Yeah, I thought those were the, the closest to just flat out impersonations of the original film. But um, I think it works, especially since they're animated. It's less jarring that went to see someone basically impersonating what came before them. Yeah. I, again, not to, to, I know we've been jumping around the whole time here, but what did you think of at the end where it was revealed like Cogsworth had a, a wife in the village or for that matter, Mrs. Potts had a husband in the village and, and the whole conceit of the part of the spell was that the village forgot, you know, that I, there was I think a it castle makes, here. And I that, think that, it makes it. Yeah, it makes it make a lot more sense. It, it, yeah, it really yeah. is, because how do you forget a castle and a prince and all that just because they're turned into beasts and inanimate objects? It's like, this is the the prince of the town. I don't know what you call it, but, you know, this is the prince. How do you forget him? And I think the spell working on the villagers like that was very smart. Okay. I, I you know, I guess for me that the... Mrs. Pot. I mean, I kind of felt bad for Emma Thompson having to try to make that moment work, or for that matter... The actor. I mean, if you, again, once you watch it, if you're seeing it for the second time, and the, the you know Bell having that moment with them in the village, it's like, what have you forgotten? You know, you've forgotten something again, and it's like, this is Mister Potts, who's clearly troubled by you know, I get there's something I can't remember. Oh yeah, my wife, my child. Yeah, yeah, you know? it's yeah. right there if you when you watch it again. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so like, look, it's okay to change things. It just that one felt kind of like. All right, that, and, you know, that, and that was again a long way to go for the joke of you know turn me back into a clock, turn me back into the clock. I hate my yeah, life. turn me back into the clock. Then, yeah. yeah, that was kind of funny. He literally I, wanted to turn back time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so. yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, they're they're not too many huge changes. You know, again, I liked the the going to Paris and going to the house um, just because it gave the the mother's back some backstory and what happened to her. Because in the cartoon, I always wondered why is she alone with the dad. Yeah. And I mean, the attraction aside, I mean, again, I know the Bell's story time cottage or whatever, but that didn't really bother me. I mean, I know that that gives you questions, but again, I think for the story and to flesh out the characters and make them more complete. I liked that change, and uh, other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of different. Uh, I liked the line that LeFou had, again, and, and uh, you know, kill the beast, because it gave him, it made it like he's not just a lackey that's going to follow him to his death, you know? It, it gave it gave the character of LeFou more to do, and it, it made him more like, hey, okay, you know, I want to be like this guy, he's popular, like, that's all great, until you realize he's a bad dude, like, he's not... I, this is not someone that I should just be blindly following into battle. And so I liked that just that small little line change and the delivery by Josh Gad, I think that adds a lot to the character. So like subtle things like that, they changed. They weren't like they changed, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 15 pages of story. Like they made those subtle little changes, but to me it made the story more complete. Yeah. I could, I couldn't get if though. Actually, they, they, there's a fun little moment at the end and I'm not talking about, Josh uh, gonna <laughs> dancing with the guy, but it turns out when they were putting this film together, somebody dug down into Howard Ashman's trunk 
and found one more verse to Beauty and the Beast. You know, that, that there's a line that we've never heard before of famine turns to feast. And 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 what's funny is that, that back in '91, when you know they were looking at what a people Bryson and Celine Dion to, to sing the song, there was pressure from the studio to the effect of you know, we need one more verse. We, we, we think we have a, you know, a, a top 10 hit here. And it's like, it's like, guys, I have used the only word I have not used that rhymes <laughs> with beast at this point is yeast. You know, and it's just, <laughs> you know I get this, you know, there's only so many words, you know, and it's like, he was like, I can't do can anything. With, so he was like, I can't do anything else. Sheesh. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. That is, so. that is funny. But, you know, so at the end, um, I will say the last thing that they really changed was the ending mm-hmm. because it's a dramatic moment. So you have to remember in the cartoon, she says, I love you right before the beast dies. The pedal falls and it's like a uh, it's like a photo finish. You know, which one's yeah. going to happen? He turns back in. Yay. Happy day. In this movie, they kill everyone. Essentially, they turn yeah, everyone thought- into inanimate objects for a moment. And it's sad. It's like four minutes long. Yeah, I thought they held I- that beat a little too long i i I have to admit you know i mean in fact you know when they almost killed chip you know it's like one of the things it's like but i get it i mean you know just in fact you know that's the the conceit of the broadway show is that as you're watching the thing on stage, the costumes change as, as time goes on, they become more and more like the, the objects that they are. And, um, they, they do that a couple of times during the film. When a, a pedal falls, they, they become that much more stiffer or, you know, a cogswork yeah. becomes even more clock-like, but yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I get it. You know, I, I get the choice and it actually did. I mean, you're right. It's too long, but it works. Um, I liked it too, Jim. I, I, I really liked it because, again, I've grown up with this movie. I've known it for 25 years. I know it's going to happen. And in the end, the same thing still happens. Yeah. But it was like, wait, well, hold on. Like, it kept me guessing. And I yeah. liked that they added it. And it was a bit emotional. Like, even no, though I, I knew that they were going to be okay, I was like starting to tear up. I'm like, they, they actually did do it pretty well, I, I think. really like candles. Well, <laughs> he never know. lights them you know, for that um, very reason. I, I love the, 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 the moment with Emma Thompson sliding on the tray with her son, the, the, you know, little boy turning back into little boy. I could have done without the dog peeing, on, you know, but it's just sort of like, I get it. You look at the coat racks. Yeah. yeah, it was it was funny. But, you know, and then in the end, it's like happily ever after. It's, it's I, all good. I saw it with the whole family. And uh, I was sitting next to my son, who's 17, and so I was driving him crazy because every time they would show the 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 coat rack, I'd be like, hey, check out that rack. <laughs> I'm like, and he's like, dad, I'm like, this joke never gets old. You're going to hear it for the whole movie because <laughs> I'm the one that's a teenager. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, well, thank you for joining us, Jim. This has been a great discussion. It's always great to have you on. You, you have so much insight and backstory and things that happened a million years ago that you have squirreled away in your basement. You yes, must have a very patient yes. wife. Lots of squirrels in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's always a treat, guys. Tell them where, where they can find you and all your wonderful Disney and other animation and theme park news. Oh, let's see. We've got Jim Hill Media. I do the stuff for the Huffington Post. I do the podcast with Len Testa. Uh, that's at iTunes and Bandcamp. And like I said, I'm in the basement killing squirrels. So, you know, hey, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a full life. So. 
Well, thank you. And uh, Kevin, why don't you tell them where you can, they can find you? Sure. This is Kevin Brackett. Follow me on Twitter at Kevin R. Brackett and read the reviews and interviews on ReviewSTL.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Roger Kubert or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Tom O'Keefe. Don't forget, if you want to continue the conversation online, if you have your thoughts about Beauty and the Beast, you can find us at Facebook.com slash Real Spoilers, where you can leave a message or tell us how much uh, we suck. I don't know. You can do all sorts of things there. You could also share an episode of the show with your friends. Join the League of Show Shares. That's always delightful or, as well. Or, you know what? What they can always do is, is uh, tell the fine folks how bad of a movie Monster Squad is. That's Joe loves it when people do that. So so feel free to stop by and do that as well. And also, don't forget, we're available on iTunes, so you can go there, rate, review, subscribe. We greatly appreciate it, and it helps us tremendously. So that's it uh, for this episode. So uh, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, Larry's father bludges him to death with his own walking stick.